Hey everybody, welcome to episode 165 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas a day later than normal because I was unfortunately sick, got knocked down with a cold yesterday and didn't get the episode out. But here we are one day late, but nevertheless, this should be a good one. We've got a few things to cover today. We'll start with some current events, talking about some upcoming fields and races to watch out for. And then I'm going to give you a, a two-part episode. We're going to talk about predictions for 2020. And I'll give you, I, I was going to do five, but I've, I've got to give you six predictions for 2020 because there's one that I just wanted to slide in there at the last minute after I did my prep. And then I want to talk a little bit about on the back end of the episode about injury and some things to think about that there for, for your own personal battles with injury based on a recent struggle with a little issue that I've been personally dealing with. So we'll talk about that and the takeaways on the other side. First, before we jump into current events, I wanted to point you to one of the episodes from my Clean Sport Collective podcast that I co-host with Kara Goucher and her agent, Shanna Burnett. We just posted an episode on Sunday with Desiree Linden, the great Des Linden, that I thought was really fascinating, and she talks a lot about her background in sport. We do talk clean sport with her, but I think we probably spend about three quarters of the episode talking about other things. And I found it really interesting and fascinating to get some of the behind the scenes takes on a few of her races. And it was also particularly cool to hear Kara and Des interacting on that episode. So I'd go check that out on the Clean Sport Collective podcast feed, which you can find on the podcast app and pretty much anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. So check that out. Beyond that, let's talk some current events. As I record this, we've got the Houston Marathon and Half Marathon coming up in uh, just under a week's time, which is always a fast, fast field. And I think this year, the elite fields have some interesting implications for the Olympic trials coming up in February. So we'll get to we'll get our first really good data points on where everybody's fitness is going into the trials. And so if you look at those fields, marathon and half, especially the international athletes, they're completely stacked fields. And I think those races with what looks to be good weather in Houston on the weekend should be really fast across the board. I wanted to, in particular, talk about the American races in the half marathon and particularly highlight those that we know will be competing in the trials coming up in February. So let's start with the men's race. If you look at the men's race, you've got some some big names to watch out for, inc- including some of your favorites for a top at least four finish to make that Olympic team plus be the one alternate. You've got Shadrach Biwat, the Brooks Hansen's athlete who has competed well at New York and Boston in recent years. You have Jared Ward, former Olympian who has been, you know, behind Scott Fobble and, and, you know, sometimes ahead of Scott Fobble as the top American marathon marathoner in the last really 18 months while Rupp has been dealing with injury. So Jared Ward is in this race. You've got Matt Lano. You've got Reed Fisher. You've got Andrew Cawley from Zap Fitness. You've got Brogan Austin who won the 
U.S. Half Marathon, or sorry, U.S. Marathon Championships at CIM in 2018. Brogan, of course, trains with the 10-man elite group. And so, and then there's there's others as well. So I think this is going to be a fascinating test to see where some of these athletes are in their prep for the trials. Now, it may or may not give us a direct message about the fitness for these athletes because I think they could be thinking about it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes athletes will go into a race like this trying to race all out as a as a really solid hard effort to prep for the marathon which will be only about 6 weeks away after this race. Or sometimes they use it as a hard training effort where maybe they're not even dropping their mileage during the week and they're just running it as sort of a long tempo as a part of their marathon build, which might be a might manifest a little bit more conservatively if you know, if they're holding back early on so as not to dig too deep of a hole so they can jump right back into training. And of course we're not gonna know how they how they're gonna approach this until we see the races go off. But I think I think you know what you'll find is that most of these athletes gearing up for the trials probably won't treat it as an all-out effort. But they'll probably treat it as something in between, ideally as a building block towards their training for the trials. And so I don't necessarily think that the results in Houston will be the perfect answer to where fitness is. And so I think it'll be more interesting actually to look at times combined with maybe some of the the words that the athletes use and talking about their efforts and if if they finish and as they talk about it in post-race interviews if they're talking about it as you know an effort where they felt strong and then ran a solid time as a result as well then to me those two things together will actually give us a little bit more information about who is really ready to to take a spot for the podium in Atlanta so we'll have to read between the lines in the results but but this is but this is good because you've got at least I would say you know two of the top five favorites in Bwat and Ward in this race, and then probably four or five of the next ten to fifteen athletes in the field who will be in this field to give us a sense for where everybody is. So that's the men's side, and then I think if you turn if you turn to the women's side, then you have kind of a similar mix of those athletes that, you know, could make some waves at the trials in terms of what caliber we're, of athlete we're looking at. We've got Molly Huddle here who has run her PR at Houston and so knows this course well. And then Sarah Hall, those would be your top two Americans in the field. Of course, Sarah had to drop out of New York back in November but seems to be healthy, seems to be training well, seems to be back on it, gearing up for the trials. So it'll be interesting to see how those two athletes approach this race. Knowing Sarah, my guess is that she won't hold anything back. It seems like, especially of late, she doesn't she doesn't seem to, to hold anything back in races. And so it'll be interesting to see if that holds true and if she might actually be the first American in this race. If I had to predict it now based on Knowing what I know, I could. I think it's probably going to be between Sarah and Molly, and I might even pick Sarah because I think Sarah might have a tendency to race as more aggressively, whereas Molly might hold a little bit back some. As she gears up the trials, we shall see. 
You've also got NAZ elite athlete Alephine Tuliamuk racing in this one who has a half PR that's just a little bit faster than Sarah Hall's. And so she could be another one that is in the mix for that top American spot. Alephine also has a really aggressive style. And so I, I can't imagine that she's going to be someone who would hold back in this race. And my guess is she might even have as a goal to, to go run as the top American. So she's another one to watch. It's been a little bit since we've been able to, to see exactly where she is at full fitness as she's had some hiccups in her last few training cycles. So it'll be interesting to see where she's at based on this run on Sunday and then, and then again, beyond that, you've got a handful of other women who, you know, are going to be in that next tier of ladies who could stamp their, their mark on the race in Atlanta. And that would include Laura Thweet, Molly Seidel, who is allegedly making her marathon debut at the trials. And then you've got a host of other women who could could do something interesting like Lindsay Flanagan, for example. And so it'll be interesting to see where everybody's sitting after this race in Houston. So check for those results uh, on Sunday. And, and then another bit of current events, we actually had the London Marathon release their women's field, their women's elite field for the race coming up this spring. And, and it is really, really stacked, as you might expect. It's been stacked the last several years. And so let's take a look at this field. We've got Bridget Cosguy, who, as we know, set the new world record in Chicago and who actually won London last year. So she's got two consecutive major wins. Then you have Ruth Chepengedich, who ran, who has run a 217 PR and who is the reigning world champion. You've got Gladys Chirono, who's won in Berlin. Vivian Shuriat, who won London two years ago. And then Joycelyn Jebgosky, who won New York in November in a time of 2.22. So this field not only has six, uh, so sorry, seven women who have run under 2.20. No, six women who have won under 2.20, seven under 2.21, but it also has a really stacked bunch of women who have stood at the top of podiums in world majors. So that's that's really impressive and it's going to be interesting to see if Kazgai can, can, can get another major win. And I also, it'll be interesting to see if between this group of women, if they actually might go for another world record and try to do better than the 214.04 that Cosguy ran in Chicago. So that'll be something to watch for. Should be a fast, exciting race. I think if if London's history tells us anything, then likely they will go for a world record, go out blisteringly fast, and maybe not get it. But it'll then be about a war of attrition to see who can hang on for that top spot. So there will be fireworks, no doubt. It will also be a little bit of a preview for Tokyo as some of these women will no doubt come back and try to get Olympic gold in Tokyo in August. So we'll get a chance to see some of these women head to head before that. So we shall see. So 
that's a bit on current events. London is yet to announce their men's field, but I'm sure it's coming soon and will also be equally stacked. So we will look out for that. All right, now jumping into the main bit of our episode. I've got kind of two parts to this one. One part being what I'm going to give you is six predictions for 2020 in terms of what might be happening in our sport. And then I'm going to turn and shift gears on the back half of this main episode and talk a little bit about some things, some lessons from injury, things to think about if you're dealing with injury. Hopefully that's not where you are, but if you are, I think there's some good takeaways in there for you. And if and when you do have a little issue that you're dealing with, Hopefully you can take some of these lessons and preemptively work through it so that it doesn't take you out. So let's jump into my predictions for the sport of running in 2020. And we've got a lot going on this year with the Olympics in Tokyo. So we've got the marathon trials in February. We've got the track trials in June. I'll be at both of those. Then of course we have the Olympics in Tokyo in August. So, so many, many things going on and I've got predictions that kind of range across all of it and cover the sport in a few different ways. So we'll start with my first prediction for 2020 running, which actually relates to the marathon trials in February on February 29th in Atlanta. And my prediction is that that race will be won both on the men's and the women's side by an athlete not wearing Nike Vaporflies or Alpha Flies or 4% or whatever you want to say. So my prediction is that a Nike athlete will not stand at the top of the podium for the men's and women's race in Atlanta. Now, some of you might say, well, that's not that big of a prediction. I, I don't know. I think it. I think it is a fairly big prediction because if you look at the women's side, you certainly have two favorites in Jordan Hesse and Amy Hastings Cragg, both Nike athletes. Amy Cragg, of course, was the winner of the trials in LA in 2016. And then Jordan Hesse has been one of the more decorated marathoners the U.S. has seen over the last two years. Although she did have to drop out of Chicago because of injury back in October. And then on the men's side, you have Galen Rupp, who has been the dominant men's force in the marathon for the last probably four years since the the trials in L.A. Now, he's been dealing with injury, and we don't know what we're going to get from him coming up in the trials. But my prediction is that he won't stand atop of the podium for whatever reason because of the strength of some of the other players. So let's break down each of those races quickly and talk about who might stand at the top of the podium if it's not a Nike athlete. Starting with the women's race, I like two athletes to potentially stand atop the podium and I'll give you my full predictions once we get close to the trials and have a little bit more data. But the two athletes I think I put in the the most likely category of standing at the top of the podium that aren't Nike athletes, they would include of course Desiree Linden and also, of course, Emily Sisson, who is a Saucony athlete. So you've got, I think, Brooks athlete and Saucony athlete. Interestingly, Des has never stood at the top 
of a trials podium, even though she's twice made the team. She has also twice finished second to Shalane Flanagan in 2012 and to Amy Craig in 2016. And I think this might be her chance to stand atop that trials podium. I think the course sets itself up well for Des with the hilly, challenging nature of it. I think potentially warm weather also favors Des because she's a tough athlete regardless of the conditions. So I like Des Lenden as a potential favorite. And then the other athlete, of course, Emily Sisson, Saucony athlete. I think you have to consider that she may be our best current marathoner, even if she doesn't have the results yet. She has shown that potential with her result in London last April. And I think she is a natural for the marathon and I think has a real chance to go win this race here in February. So those are the two athletes I like on the women's side to potentially stand atop the podium. I won't make a final prediction there until we get a little bit closer to the trials, but those are my picks. Brooks or Saucony, I think, will be at the top of the podium, not Nike on the women's side. And then if you look on the men's side, I think you have two, well, really three potential favorites that are not named Galen Rupp. One of those is the Nike athlete. So you have Leonard Career, who debuted in 207 last year from the U.S. Army group that is Nike-sponsored. And so if you look at the Nike athletes that are most likely to stand on the podium, it would be Career and Rupp. And both of them will walk into this race with the fastest PRs of the group. But you have two really savvy, really salty runners who I think are going to be at the top of their game, and that's Jared Ward, Saucony athlete, and Scott Fobble, who was the top American in Boston. He's obviously a Hoka athlete who trains with the NAZ Elite crew under Ben Rosario and I think has a shot to really make some waves for that team here at the trials. I think both of those two athletes, Jared and Scott, will be on the podium. And it's just a question of can they stand at the top. As it relates to Rupp, I don't know that we know exactly what fitness he'll be able to get into because it's, he had to drop out of Chicago. It sounds like his Achilles has been bothering him more and maybe only recently has actually that pain has gone away. And so it's hard to know exactly what we're going to get from Rupp on the day. And Leonard Career, while he has that solid debut marathon, it came in a flat paced race. And that's a very different affair than what you're going to get in Atlanta with the hills and with the championship nature of that race. So I think that's a, he's a bit of a, a wild card in terms of what we'll be able to see from career. And while I would say that career or Rupp probably have a greater chance of being on the podium than Craig or Hesse, the top of the podium, excuse me, than Craig or Hesse, I still like the fact that I think somebody like Jared Ward could 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 surprise some people even though it won't be a surprise it'd be on the they would be on the olympic team i think it would be a surprise if he was able to win so we shall see but maybe that if it's if it happens we'll put some of the vaporfly discussion and debate to rest if we can get two two non-nike athletes at the top of the trials podiums so 
that's my first prediction for 2020 is that the trials will be won both on the men's and women's side by athletes not wearing Nike shoes. So that's number one. My second prediction for 2020 is that the Hoka NAZ Elite team will put three athletes on the Olympic team in Tokyo. They've never had an Olympian, but I think this time they're set up for potentially having three athletes on an Olympic team, which would be huge for them. And so that's, you know, some people might say that's too specific a prediction. Well, I guess this is my podcast. I write the rules, but I like it because I think it gives you a little bit of an underdog story to root for. And I think you would, even though they have plenty of athletes, I think the team would agree and many would agree that they're a bit of an underdog team that people don't really look to necessarily as they should to be on Olympic teams. But this time I think the tide will change for them in a big way. And I think there are four athletes at least that have a real shot of making an Olympic team. Scott Fobble, as I've already mentioned for the men's marathon then Kellen Taylor and Steph Bruce for the women's marathon or the women's 10K. And I think Alephine Tuliamuk is another athlete who could be on the team for the marathon or the 10K as well. So those are the four athletes I think have a shot. And I think three of those four will make an Olympic team. May not be in the marathon, could be in the 10K on the track. And it could be as a result of taking an alternate spot. Because, you know, I think when you look at what will happen with the women's side in particular, you might have some some women that make the team in both the marathon and the 10K. Emily Sisson could be one of those names. And Emily might choose to race the marathon in Tokyo and forego the 10K, in which case that fourth alternate might move up. And I think that could be somebody like a Steph Bruce or a Kellen Taylor who slides into that fourth spot for the 10K who might actually benefit from Sisson or potentially even a Molly Huddle dropping the 10K for the marathon. So we may have to watch this one all the way through up to August to see the the final tally of these athletes that make the team. But that's my second prediction for 2020, that the Hoka NAZ Elite team will have a breakout year and put three athletes on the Olympic team. And because they are underdogs, I think it'll be fun to root for that. So stay tuned. We shall see. All right, my third prediction for 2020 doesn't have anything to do with athlete results. It has everything to do with regulation. My third prediction is that we will have an IAAF regulation governing shoes before the Olympics in 2020. I don't think we'll get it before the Olympic trials in February, but I do think we'll get it before the Olympics in 2020. And and I think it could come in a couple of different forms. Some of this, if you believe in conspiracy theories, might actually be lobbied by Nike as a part of this But I think you will either see a crackdown on prototypes, 
which is basically already illegal according to the IAAF rules. You have to be able to wear, or you have to wear shoes that are readily available to all. And that often isn't the case, and that rule isn't uniformly or at all enforced by the IAAF, perhaps because it's difficult to know the answers to that. But nevertheless, I think you will have a crackdown, either a crackdown on that regulation, which in many cases might actually benefit Nike because it would prevent somebody from wearing a prototype that may not, that may be comparable to the 4% or the Vaporfly, but may not have yet been released to the public. So I think you'll either see that happen and associated process and procedure for managing that, or I think you'll see a stack height regulation come into play that will limit the the stack heights that you can use, which, and I don't know the exact measurements, but I know that the Alpha Fly in particular, the Nike prototype to the, the updated prototype to the 4% has a really high stack height. And so there may be some regulation that limit that, but still allow the 4% or the Vapor Fly, which I think is under a certain regulation. So I think one way or another, you're going to see a regulation before before the before the Olympics in August that affects footwear. So that's something to watch out for, but I do think it's coming and I think we'll see it in time for Tokyo. So that's my third prediction for 2020. My fourth prediction for 2020 is that relates to the Olympics itself, which is that the U.S. track and field team will win 30 medals or more at the track and field or on the track and field in Tokyo in August. Now, some would say, well, that's not that big of a prediction. Well, the U.S. won 29 medals at the World Championships. They did win 32 in Rio, but that's significantly different than the number that they won in London in 2012. And so it's not a foregone conclusion that the U.S. will win 30 medals, but I do think the U.S. benefits from a few things. One, the fact that Russia will likely not be able to compete as a country in the Olympics, and so that takes out a slew of athletes that might be stealing medals or potentially earning medals from the U.S. athletes. So that's one point. The second point is that the U.S. is strong in the sprints, Again, maybe stronger than it's been relative to Jamaica and the heyday of Bolt, where the U.S. might not get the medals that they once earned in the 100 meters and 200 meters, for example. They're strong in the sprints with Noah Lyles and Christian Coleman being two young up-and-coming sprinters who will certainly be in, you know, in line for medals in Tokyo. You also have really strong you know, 110 and 400 hurdle groups across the board for the men and women that will be going to Tokyo. And then, of course, in the distance events, we're strong in many of those as well. Maybe not quite as strong as we were in 2016 in in, in things like the 5K and 10K, but still strong in the steeple, the 800, the 1500 in particular, with an outside chance to medal in, in particularly an event like the men's 5K maybe even the men's 10K, potentially the the women's 5K if Shelby Houlihan decides to race that. 
So there's a few different distance events where we've got we've got a shot. I think the middle distance is more likely where we'll get medals. But that combined with strong sprinting power, I think will set us up and with Russia not likely competing, that will set us up to win 30 or more medals and potentially reprise our results from Rio where we earned 32 medals. So that's something to be excited about and to cheer for. I'll be going to the to the track trials in June to watch our team be formed and shaped and then of course watching on TV when Tokyo kicks off in August. So that's my fourth prediction for 2020 and I've got two more. My fifth prediction for 2020 is that it actually relates to the marathon and not athlete results is that Boston will announce after registration for the 2021 race that they're again lowering the standards for entry into the Boston Marathon. If you looked at it this year, you know this was the first year where they had the new standards that they had dropped by five minutes, where the fastest men's standard was three hours and the faster women's standard was three hours and 30 minutes. In order to make it in the fields this year, you had to run a minute and 39 seconds faster than those standards or the associated age group standards. And with the advent of shoe technology and that and how that might impact fields and times in fields, I think you're going to see another big jump in that gap, that cutoff for earning your spot in Boston, even if you're under the cutoff, even if you're under the qualifying time. I think you'll see another big jump, and I think that jump may be enough to warrant dropping those times again by five more minutes. So if I had to predict for qualifying for the 20, it'd be the 2022 race, 2021 registration. If I had to make that prediction, then I think the fastest standards will be 255 and 325 at that time. That's just a prediction. I hope I'm not right for the sake of those athletes seeking that Boston standard. But what I would say is that that, that, drop in time is likely coming at some point. So if you're somebody aspiring to Boston qualifying, I would set your sights to that BQ minus five at a minimum in order to get your spot, whether it be for the 2021 race. And then I think certainly for the 2022 race, because even if they don't change the standard, I think by that point, the cutoff might actually be five minutes or close to five minutes as it was the last time they had to adjust the standards. So so that's another prediction for 2020 is that the Boston standards will actually be announced after registration in 2020 that they're dropping them again. So something to look out for and prepare for. That's number five. And then number six, my last prediction for 2020 relates to the marathon again. And I'm going to predict that as it relates to the New York Marathon that we'll see Elliot Kipchoge race the New York Marathon in November and win that marathon in November. This year, I think, sets up particularly well for this to come true because of the Olympics. It doesn't make sense to race Berlin in September right after the Olympics, not to mention the fact that because... Kipchoge did the Breaking 2 project last year. He's no longer the Berlin defending champion, so he has no reason to go back there. 
for two reasons, because it's too close to Tokyo and because he's not the defending champion. In addition, I know that Kipchoge has been in New York the last two years to cheer on his training partner, Jeffrey Kamroer. And I'm sure as a part of that, the New York City Marathon has been wooing him to come do the race someday. This seems like a ripe year for it, given the timing associated with Tokyo. And it is a quick turnaround to New York, but not an unprecedented turnaround to New York going from August to November. And somebody like Kipchoge has the tools to be able to do that, given his marathoning experience. So that's my sixth and final prediction for 2020 that Kipchoge will not only race New York, but as he does in marathons, he will win it, which will be fun to watch. It'll be fun to watch him racing on U.S. soil, and that would be a huge get for the New York City Marathon. So fingers crossed that we can see that. All right. So those are my predictions for 2020. They range from the trials all the way to New York. We'll be tracking those things as we go throughout the year. And if you have any thoughts or other predictions you'd like to throw in, shoot me an email, chris at roguerunning.com. Would love to get a little bit more dialogue on this going in future episodes as we get feedback from you. And then as we switch gears on this episode, wanted to talk a little bit about injury management. And this isn't really going to be about managing specific injuries. It's going to be more about some key lessons that I've learned from managing or a recent issue that I've been dealing with that I think would be helpful to all of you in trying to stay ahead of an issue before before it comes something too big that takes you out of races. And so, so with that, I'll give you a little bit of context on what I've been dealing with over the last three or four weeks or so. I raced a half marathon here in Austin in mid-December. And as a part of that race, I ran a really aggressive plan, really aggressive strategy and was overall happy with the result. But I definitely dug deep on the day and really went to the well, so to speak, not only aerobically, but also I think physically, neuromuscularly. And so I woke up the next day after the race and had planned to do an easy run to get things moving and start the recovery process post-race and went out for an eight mile run and as a part of, but started super easy. But and as a part of that run, I could feel some tightness in my hamstring that kind of lingered more or less the whole time, but did seem to get a little bit better as I went. And so got through the eight miles, felt a little bit better, a little looser as we went, but was still there. And then the next day I went out for another eight mile easy run to try to test it again. And again, it seemed to get a little bit better as I went. I even did some pickups during that run just to try to flush the legs out a little bit more, get them to loosen up at not fast, but just a little bit quicker than easy pace kinds of paces. And so I did that during that run again, felt a little better at the end than when I started, which is always a good sign that maybe you're working through it. But then I went out for my run on Wednesday, which was going to be relatively short and only made it about two miles before feeling like it it wasn't getting better on the run on that third day out. And it felt like with every step, it was getting a little bit worse. So I took that as a sign that I needed to intervene. So I cut my run short, went back, made it only a four mile run. 
and then started to proactively go into triage mode to figure out what was going on to try to address the issue. So pretty quickly scheduled a massage with our friends at Run Lab that share the space with us here at Rogue. Got that scheduled for the next day. Then also reached out to the practitioners that I see to try to check in with them as well to try to triage the issue and figure out what was going on. So immediately went into triage mode and signed up to see the practitioners that I see. I also went into my own personal rehab mode and started doing a ton of foam rolling. My first hypothesis was that maybe the hamstring was just tight and the muscles around it were just tight because you know, because of the race and the challenges that that created for my body neuromuscularly. So I started doing a ton of foam rolling. And one of the things I recommend when you're doing foam rolling is not just to roll the area that's tight itself, like the hamstring in this case, but also roll all of the areas around that. For me, that means lower back, glutes, quads, adductors, abductors, really try to get the whole upper leg to try to see if maybe something else is tight where you're not feeling the pain and that might be cool causing an issue with the affected area. So I was doing my own foam rolling. Then I got a massage at Run Lab, as I mentioned, tried to do another run, actually only made it a mile out on that fourth run of the week and then decided to cut it short and head back in because it was just escalating more. And the pain felt like, like I think the pain you might feel is if you strained a, a hamstring, but, you know, but I thought it could be a tight hamstring, could be a strained hamstring, could be something else. So, so started going through that information gathering process and then ultimately got in to see the practitioners that I see here in Austin and, and was able to get more definitive information, which is that, in fact, the hamstring itself was okay. It was just that I had some neuromuscular communication issues happening, which is that the nerve had become impinged or entrapped and sort of stuck to the fascia on the left side, right by the hamstring. And because of that impingement or that stickiness, it was firing errant signals into my hamstring, causing the hamstring to be tight and to kind of lock up. And so what felt like a strain of the hamstring actually wasn't the hamstring at all. It was a nerve issue, particularly the sciatic nerve being stuck to the fascia and probably slightly impinged as well and not quite sending the right signals to the hamstring, which was causing everything to go haywire and lock up. And I think one of the reasons why that got worse as the week went on is because you can get scar tissue in your fascia, which can cause that nerve to move even less. And so what likely happened is that scar tissue built up over the course of the week and the nerve got more and more stuck in the nerve canal. And then as a result was but really mad and sending air and signals into the hamstring, which is causing it to lock up. So basically what you do about that is try to get the nerve to move normally again, which involves a series of what you call, what we call nerve glides, which helps floss the nerve and get the nerve moving normally again. 
as well as mobility exercises to try to open up that hip and the associated muscles around the nerve and then some some actual physical manipulations that that were done by practitioners to help me get the body back into a normal mode and then from there I've been able to gradually build back activity fortunately unfortunately I'm not all the way back to being able to do all the speed that I would like to normally do but last week I did get a mileage level during the week that was pretty close to what I need to be doing for marathon training but that's because I've been proactively managing the issue ever since after getting that appropriate diagnosis and I've also been able to run as a result while doing the rehab listening to my body as I go to make sure I don't overdo it. So some takeaways that I wanted to bring forward on this. And again, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a coach who helps deal with these things. And, and so obviously you should see a practitioner if you're dealing with injuries, but there's some things I think that are important lessons in managing injury from this little issue that I've been dealing with that I wanted to bring forward for you. The first lesson is that where you feel the pain is usually not the cause of the problem. And this I have to caveat, this is really more for running related injuries. I think if we're talking about acute injuries where it be fractures or tears, that's going to be a little bit different. But for for running related injuries, soft tissue related injuries, typically where you're feeling the pain is not the root cause of the problem. And so what it's really important through your process with your practitioners of really figuring out the root cause of the problem so that you can get to the core issue. In my case, it felt like the hamstring was the problem. That's where I was feeling the pain or the tightness. In reality, it wasn't the hamstring itself. The nerve and the fascia adjacent to the nerve was actually the problem. And so being able to figure that out, identify that core issue, then allowed me to appropriately address the issue. Because if if I'd been focused more on the hamstring, that might have involved things that might loosen the hamstring or potentially strengthen the hamstring. And while some of those things, I think have been a part of my rehab to get everything working normally. It's been more about improving the communication between the nerve and the hamstring than it is that it has been about fixing the hamstring itself. And I think the same lesson can be true from a lot of running injuries that most of the time where you're feeling the pain, that's not the root cause. Another example from my history, you know, plantar pain. Usually if you're feeling pain in your pant in your plantar, that's not the source of the problem. Usually the source of the problem is actually ankle mobility, maybe tightness above the plantar in the connective in the in the kinetic chain. Again, there may be different reasons for plantar fasciitis. I encourage you to see a practitioner, but oftentimes that's just the weak link in the chain that happens to be the part that gets beat up and then hurts. And then yes, you have to fix where the pain is, but if you don't fix the source of the problem, then it's going to recur and come back. So that's 
a number one lesson is the the source of the pain is rarely the cause of the problem for soft tissue running related injuries. Second lesson, of course, is that you have to listen to your body and let pain be your guide as you deal with these issues. You know, I had two runs on Monday and Tuesday where I was able to to get out there, move, have the pain, which was relatively low grade. I think I would probably say it was a three or four on a one to 10 pain scale. But it got better during those runs. And I kept running as a result. If it was getting better from the running, then keep running. On the third and fourth runs, it was feeling like it was getting worse from the from the running for whatever reason. So I cut those runs short. And every run since, I've really used pain as my guide. You know, and if and nothing wrong with the necessarily wrong with a low level of pain if it gets better as you go. Now, again, consult your practitioner on this and, you know, every injury is going to be a little bit different. But just because you have pain doesn't necessarily mean you can't run. It just needs it just means you need to get the right diagnosis, figure out the right root cause, get the right advice from a practitioner and then use pain as your guide for activity. If your pain gets better as you go, that could be a sign that movement is helping it. Pain gets worse as you go. That's a sign that movement isn't helping it and that you should cut things short. You know, I take this all the way to a run I did this past Saturday where I haven't been able to run more than probably 12 miles and decided to go a little bit longer than that and started the first couple of miles and things were still not feeling so great, but then it worked itself out as I went and got better as I went. So I ended up doing a little bit of a longer run on Saturday and I used pain as my guide along the way. And so that's a critical thing. I think a lot of times we like to numb pain by using Advil, Tylenol, all those things to make it go away. And that's not to say there aren't a time and a place for that. But in general, pain is a signal from your body and you need to learn to read it and use it to inform what you're doing. Not only what might be the root cause, but also how you might proceed with activity. And if pain is getting worse when you have and, and do activity, that's a problem. That's probably a sign that activity is not a good thing But for it. But if the pain gets better through activity, that could be a sign that activity is actually helping you work out the issue. Again, that's not always true. Certainly, you know, consult a practitioner and get their advice on these things. But to me, it's critical to let pain be a guide through your recovery process versus dulling or numbing it. So that's the second lesson. Third lesson, get to a practitioner as quickly as possible so they can help you not only manage your activity level, but also understand the root cause. You know, I've got three different practitioners in Austin that I work with and use at various times. We've got Run Lab in our facility. I've got Dr. Moose, who's a chiropractor who I see. And then I've got Mondo Sports Therapy, who's a physical therapist. All three of those have helped me in different ways. And I might call upon at different times and sometimes even get an opinion from all in order to figure out how to proceed. But it's critical for you to have that portfolio of people that you can go to so that when something does pop up, you can quickly get in to see them and triage the issue. 
then I was able to see somebody later that week, I think by Friday, in order to, to triage the issue so that I knew what to do going forward. And so that's just, so that's critical. And if you don't have that person, find them. Even if you don't have an injury, find that person that you should call. And, you know, in Austin, you can check out those three names I mentioned. If you're not in Austin, I would encourage you to talk to other runners, maybe in your running groups, find out who they see or talk to the local running store, see who they recommend, maybe who they partner with and trust. It's critical to find a practitioner, regardless of their their medical background, that really knows and understands runners and runners' soft tissue injuries. That could be an MD, it could be a chiropractor, it could be a physical therapist, it could be a, a host of practitioners who get it, who have that experience and expertise with the issues that we tend to deal with. I think that experience is critical. So find that person who's the expert, who the local runners see, put them in your phone so that when something does pop up, you can reach out quickly and immediately to figure out what's going on. So that's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is recovering from an injury is a very active process, especially a soft tissue injury. When we're talking about fractures or other acute injuries, there may be a reason for complete inactivity for a period of time in order for that to heal. But for the most part, when you're dealing with soft tissue injuries that are nerve-related, muscle-related, potentially tendon-related, those injuries require very active recovery, require you doing a lot of work in order to make th- the that issue go away and then hopefully put yourself in a stronger position so it doesn't come back. So for me in dealing with this injury with the nerve, that has meant spending sometimes a couple of hours a day on rehab activities. Not necessarily all at one time, but potentially in 30 minute to an hour chunks, sometimes even 90 minute chunks in order to make sure that I'm working this thing out. That includes for me nerve glides, that includes mobility exercises, hip openers, other mobility work, leg swings, things like that. And then of course, some basic strength rehab exercises to get the nerve communicating well again with the muscle. And frankly, it's been a little bit exhausting, but but I care and it's important. And I'm competing in this racing series called the Distance Challenge. I happen to be leading. We've got a race coming up quickly in less than a week as I record this. And so I have to be back on my game in order to compete. And while that race may not be what it would have been had I been healthy since December, I do think I'm going to be able to put something together on the start line on Sunday that will be solid and allow me to retain my lead, knock on wood. But the only reason that's happening is because I've been working really hard working through this issue and nerve issues are notoriously stubborn and sometimes take a while to work through because when that nerve gets pissed off, that can linger for a while. So that's something I'm working through, but it's meant a lot of work and maybe even more time spent on the whole process than when I'm running all the miles and and just doing a little bit of side rehab to stay healthy. You know, I'd say I'm probably putting more time in training right now just to work through this issue than I would if I was just running normally, but that's what it takes 
to be healthy. And some of you might say, well, that's crazy. I don't have time for that. Well, maybe you don't. And that's fine. You have time for what you have time for. And what I would say is, that's fine. Make time for what you can spend time on. And me spending 30 minutes on nerve glides and other mobility exercises would also help me work through this. And it might take a little bit longer, but either way, those things would have been necessary in order to get back to 100%. And so if you have an injury right now, or when you have an injury, resist the temptation to do nothing. Always do something. And above and beyond that, you know, cross training aerobically is also key if you can. I've had to do a little bit of spin bike myself because that has been a pain-free exercise in the last month. So that's been a way that I've been able to get aerobic fitness in addition to now the little bit of running I've been doing and building back. Either way, the process should involve work. It doesn't involve just taking time off and doing nothing because if I'd done that in this case, then that nerve would still be stuck. That nerve would still be stuck when I started back to running if I did nothing in between then and now. And and then I would be, you know, still another three to four weeks from being fully recovered if I'd gotten to that point by just doing nothing. So rehab, recovering from running injuries, it's a very active process. So make sure you spend the time doing the things you need to do in order to build back. And the bonus part of that is that it means if you do those things, then you're less likely to face this issue again, because ideally you're starting to address some of the root causes as a part of that rehab. So those are some some things to think about if and when you're dealing with an injury. And hopefully that is encouraging for you in addition to, you know, I think potentially being, you know, bad news for some. You're like, oh damn, do I have to do work? Yes, you have to do work. But to me it's encouraging because it gives you something to do in the meantime to be proactive versus just sitting on your hands and not doing anything. So if that's you or when that's you, see someone quickly, figure out the root cause, use pain as your guide, and then of course be very active in your recovery process, whatever that looks like and with the advice of a practitioner so that you can work through it and then be stronger on the other side. So, I'm going to wrap it there. I'll update you on how my race goes because I'm going into a race on Sunday, really just getting back from this issue and knock on wood again, I should be able to at least put something up respectable on Sunday. I'll let you know how that goes and keep you posted. Otherwise, I will wrap this episode here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at roguerunning, or you can follow me personally at roguechris on Instagram. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.